get another face to welcome you this morning. My name is Matt Luloyan. I get the privilege of serving as the, the pastor here. It's just an honor to, to serve uh, this church in that capacity. I'm reminded of that, the blessing that it is, the, the challenge too, but the blessing that it is uh, regularly. Uh, and we're going to be just this week and next week doing a couple standalone Sundays. Uh, you saw it in your bulletin and on the slide there. Next Sunday is our uh, family worship Sunday, our first ever time that we've done that. Um, so just to prepare you for that a little bit, we're going to have everybody that is in this building uh, on a Sunday morning all in this room together for the first 30 minutes of that worship service. That includes you know, newborn babies through the oldest of us in the room. Um, and then the nursery for birth through pre-K uh, will start at the passing of the peacetime and then go for the rest of the service. The Liberty Kids Age Kids will be in here the whole time. So just, um, to, just to set your kind of expectations for what that morning might entail, um, if you're a parent of kids in that range, gonna, kids are going to be in here, uh, we just want to say, like, feel the freedom. We know that they're going to make noise and be fidgety and not be able to sit still. Uh, it's actually hopefully going to be an encouragement to all of us to celebrate that we have people across the generations uh, together in our, in our worship space. So we don't want you to, to be concerned about that. We're thinking about you ahead of time. We've got some activity stuff for your kids, some snacks for your kids you'll be able to pick up at the welcome table when you come in next week, uh, and, and some uh, a kids' bulletin for the Liberty Kids Age kids to use during the, the service time. So um, come for that next week if you're in town. I know some people are traveling for Memorial Day. And then right after the service, stick around. We're going to just go out back to the pavilion that's behind the Elks Lodge and have our first... Uh, picnic in the park. We do that the last Sunday of the month uh, throughout the summer from May through August. Um, so the first one of those is next Sunday. Uh, bring a lunch uh, with you. Um, run out real fast after the service ends and pick one up at a local restaurant. Bring it back. Whatever you'd like to do, that's fine. Uh, just a great time for us to uh, spend together. And there are a lot of new faces that, that consider Liberty Church their home over the past year. So if you've never uh, gotten to meet people or get connected in a meaningful way, it's be a great chance for you to, to do that too. Uh, if you've got Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 2 Peter, just for one Sunday, just kind of a standalone week in the book of 2 Peter. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles that Jake referenced, page 1018 uh, is where that is found, almost at the very end uh, of, your, of your Bible. So you can go ahead and, uh, and make, your way, make your way there. About 20 years ago, uh, the movie version, the film Titanic, came out. And uh, it's, you know, not to, like, spoiler, I think everyone knows the story. The boat hits an iceberg and it sinks. Okay, if you didn't know that, I don't really apologize. You probably should have known that. Um, but in the movie, when that happens, uh, the boat hits the iceberg. There's this mad dash and scramble for the lifeboats. And on the top deck, the wealthy men are, like, f- scrambling for positions and seats in the boat. They're, like, pushing women and children aside. So the British sailors draw these handguns and yell at them to, to get back so the women and children can, can go first. It's this really dramatic scene. And no doubt the, the real scene was dramatic, but actually that piece of it is completely historically false. It's completely false. The universal accounts from people that were on board that ship were that the men, including uh, some of the wealthiest men in the world who were on board that boat, uh, men like Benjamin Guggenheim, famous philanthropist, uh, men like John Jacob Astor, who was like the Bill Gates of his day, the wealthiest man in the world, uh, they helped women and children get on the boats, and then they stepped back and they drowned with the ship. Why would you alter the history of how that actually went down in the making of the movie? When the New York Times reviewed the movie not long after it came out, they concluded 
that if the producer, if the director had told the story as it actually happened, had told the truth, that nobody would have believed them. Why not? In other words, you and I, in our culture, in this cultural moment, we struggle to comprehend the moral imperative that would lead so many people to willingly sacrifice themselves for the good of others. Now, if that isn't a critique of our culture, then I don't know what is. Two men, uh, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, they recently published a book called Good Faith. David Kinnaman is the the director of a group called Barna Research. And based on a lot of research that Barna did, um, they conclude in this book that our culture as a whole has adopted self-fulfillment as the ultimate measure of moral good. So everybody, uh, regardless of our faith, regardless of our religion, regardless of our creed, uh, we have some understanding of the highest moral good. You know, some, some framework for which we look, to which we look for the highest moral good. And for the vast majority of the history of civilization, people have looked outside of themselves for that ultimate measure of moral good. But in recent decades, maybe you could even argue centuries, uh, Americans or people in the West have increasingly rejected sources outside of themselves and have increasingly looked within to things like self-fulfillment as the highest good. So what I want, um, what I feel like I need in a given moment, that is truly what is, what is ultimate. And in light of that, I think it's not at all surprising that you have to doctor the history of the selfless acts of those men aboard the Titanic. Because people like us who have self-fulfillment as our highest, you know, our pinnacle of moral good, we don't easily sign ourselves up to die a terrible death so that other people might experience life. So we're in Second Peter uh, just for this morning. Perhaps someday we'll come back to this book in more depth. And there are some parallels, I think, between that and, what, and the landscape to which Peter is writing as he writes this, which is the second of his letters in our Bible. The main uh, thrust of this letter, of 2 Peter, is a warning against the influence of false teachers, a warning against drifting into false teaching. And the primary false teaching that Peter would have been encountering as he wrote this letter was something called Gnostic dualism. Gnosticism was this idea of, uh, that there's a special knowledge, a gnosis that you can acquire, and you need to acquire that to, uh, to experience salvation. And dualism is this view of the world where there's a hard-line divide between the spiritual, which is good, and the material or physical world, which is disgusting and evil, and it's a prison to be escaped. There are all kinds of damaging ripple effects that come from that foundational view, but at its core is this Gnostic dualism kind of view. Well, in our day, that's not necessarily the, the same false teaching that we encounter, But one of the biggest false teachings that you will find in our day, both inside the church and outside the church, is this idea that the highest moral good is found within me, right? Is found in self-fulfillment. The truth is, the reality is that the highest moral good is found outside of me. It's found in the beautiful design of God. It's found in the compassionate heart of God. It's found in the power of God's redemption, And that's a fundamentally different perspective. And that fundamentally different perspective will alter our view of every single moral and ethical issue that we encounter. Like whatever the hot-button topic is of our day, the way we understand where the pinnacle of moral good comes from will affect our view of that hot-button topic. So our hot-button topic right now in this cultural moment are issues of gender identity, gender dysphoria. 
And this very much comes to play on that. This isn't a sermon about that, but this does affect that, our view of that. And we approach these conversations very differently if our starting point is, a, is that the highest moral good comes from within compared to if the highest moral good comes from outside of us. They are, they are really, and I, and I would encourage you to see it this way, they are different lenses on the world. And far more important than what you think about any particular topic or issue are the lenses that you're using to see. And what's, what strikes me as I read reports like what come up, comes up in that book, Good Faith, what the research is revealing is that our culture has bought and is buying a fundamental lie about the source of moral good and the highest moral good and where that comes from. Right? That's the direction of the current of our culture, just like Gnostic dualism was the current of the culture in Peter's day. And if Peter were writing today, I think that this issue of where the highest moral good comes from might be worthy of, a, of an epistle. I think, it, I think it's that core and that important that he might write a letter, just like Second Peter, to us about that kind of topic. Now, as Peter writes this letter, uh, just before his death, he's in Rome, the hands of the Roman Empire, he's going to die soon, he calls Christians to pursue a lifestyle of godliness and of love and of self-control. There's eight qualities that he's going to rattle off that we'll read here in just a moment. And what he says is, make every effort... Make every effort to cultivate these things, to cultivate this kind of life. That actually, the cultivating these things, that will be how you stand against this drift into false teaching, this drift into a fruitless, futile kind of life. So I want us to consider that call together this morning. And, and my hope as we do is this. My hope is that God, through what he's given us in his word, would stir up in each of us a deeper hunger to experience this ongoing transformative work of his grace in our lives. Right? That each of us would read this and we'd be stirred up again this morning, or maybe stirred up for the first time for you, to run hard after the qualities that are mentioned in this text. And that you would have like an unquenchable thirst that results in fruitfulness in your life and that keeps you from falling, that keeps you from drifting like someone without an anchor. That's not something that can be manufactured. Uh, we can't manufacture that with like a 30-minute sermon. can't manufacture that with willpower. We can, by gathering together, by sitting underneath God's word, by coming to this table where we taste the grace of Jesus himself, we can gather kindling around a fire that we long for God to ignite and then continue to stoke and then relight every time it goes out. So that's my hope for us this morning. I'm going to read 2 Peter Uh, Chapter 1, verses 3 through 15. Uh, And you can follow along with me as I read. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. God, would you do work in our hearts that some of us long for and some of us resist, and all of us do both of those things from time to time. Uh, We pray that you would do the work of stirring us up to pursuing this this kind of life, Um, not as a means to earn something from you, but has a way to actually live out what you have already accomplished for us? Would Peter's reminder ring true in our ears and in our hearts this morning? Whatever it is specifically that you want to teach us through your word this morning, do that powerful work. Stir uh, up a passion for you, Jesus, in our hearts. We pray that in your name. Amen. So we'll spend just some time thinking about Peter's call to make every effort. We'll do that in two parts. Um, The first will be the foundation of making every effort, and the second will be the fruit of making every effort. So first, the foundation of making every effort. Uh, I think there's really some important groundwork that we need to lay in order to appreciate what Peter says here. Uh, If you survey the landscape of Christianity, Christian groups, Christian denominations, generally speaking, you'll find some groups that you'll classify as the grace Christians and some that you'll classify as the works Christians. And some of you are barely brand new to the church, and if you don't know the difference, then that's fantastic. Um, All the rest of us who have spent some time in the church can probably easily identify, like, okay, this group's probably like grace Christians, these are works Christians. Grace Christians are those that talk a lot about Jesus, they talk a lot about the work that he has done on our behalf, They aren't known necessarily for for applying that in radical ways in their life. They're not known necessarily for living that out in a way that is costly and sacrificial over and over again. That's the general uh, perception that exists among that group. Works Christians, on the other hand, are people that are out there serving, loving, uh, working hard on a regular basis, but perhaps making the gospel all about their efforts, giving off the impression that Christianity is about the things that we do rather than the truth, which is that Christianity is all about what Jesus has done for us. The separation of these two groups, or the perception that exists, really, I think, is sad. Uh, And it's rooted in a false dichotomy between grace and works, between uh, faith and effort. According to Scripture, those things are actually very intricately interwoven, and they're inseparable when it comes to a faithful understanding and a faithful practice of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is, though, an important, as inseparable as those things are, there's an important priority. Uh, God's grace, specifically through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, gives us a new identity. And then, the rest of our lives, we live out uh, that new identity in the way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we think. So our efforts, our work, that's never to earn something from God. That's never to put God in our debt somehow. Uh, It's always a reflection of and a response to 
the work that God has done and the work that God is doing. So other theologians have said it this way. This is not my original, but I love the way that this is put. They say, the call of a Christian life is to become who you are. It's not become something different. You've been given a new identity. Now, become who you are. Live in light of the new identity you've been given. And Peter teaches this very thing through this text. Uh, He surrounds this call to make every effort with reminders of what God has done and reminders of what is true for us because of what God has done. So why can we make every effort? Well, in verses 3 and 4, first of all, he says, because God's power and promises are at work for you, you can make every effort. He says that his power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, we aren't lacking anything. Most specifically, he's given us, as Abby said this morning, he's given us himself, an intimate relationship of knowledge, of knowing him. To know him, to be known by him, to experience his glory, to experience his excellence. And then he's given us what Peter calls precious and very great promises. God makes promises to his people. And because he's God and he's powerful, he keeps those promises. What kind of promises? Well, promises like this. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I will be with you to the end of the age. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Promises like that. God has promised us that he will be with us. That's that relationship that he he gives us himself. And he's powerful enough to be faithful to follow through to give us everything that we need. So we're able to, because of that, make every effort. We can also make every effort because what it says in verse 9, we've been cleansed of our former sins. Our old selves, corrupted by sin, they've been made new through the blood of Christ. And as Paul, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we were once unrighteous, we were idolaters, we were immoral, we were thieves, we were drunkards, we were revilers, but we were washed. We were washed. The blood of Jesus, just like we sang together this morning, has made us white as snow. That's not to say that we are free from sin, Uh, We wouldn't have to apply any effort. We wouldn't have to make every effort if sin was gone from us, if we were already perfect. It is, though, to say that God's grace has already been effective to make us a new creation, to free us from slavery to sin, to free us to this pursuit of becoming more and more like Jesus. And the third reason that we're able to make every effort, the foundation of making every effort, is because we're invited to participate in our holiness. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. You are invited to participate in your own holiness. Verse 11, By practicing these qualities, it will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, what does it mean that we get to participate in our holiness? Well, there are a lot of different pictures of salvation that we encounter in Scripture, and we can look at them as different facets of a single diamond, right? It's all the salvation of God. It's all the work that God does. We can look at those from different facets. So in tons of those pictures of salvation, you and I are completely passive, right? Completely passive. Adoption, being brought into God's family. Justification, being declared righteous. Getting the the record of Jesus, the perfect record of Jesus to count on our behalf. He takes our treasonous record on himself. 
uh, regeneration of the idea of being born again, having our hard hearts of stone torn out, being given soft hearts of flesh instead. Uh, resurrection is another picture of salvation. We were dead, we've been made alive again. In all of those things, we are passive. Dead people don't make themselves alive again. We can't perform our own heart transplant. We can't go back into our mother's womb to be born again. But when you consider another picture of salvation, namely sanctification, we're given a very active role. Sanctification is a, is a word that, that you know, we use as a theological term uh, for being made holy, being made clean, being made holy. And Scripture speaks about sanctification in stages. So there's an initial sanctification. Because of the work Jesus has done, we are already called clean. We are already called purified people. That's already true for us. There's a final sanctification that happens at the consummation of God's kingdom when Jesus comes again. In that day, we will be completely like Jesus, perfect in every way, free from sin of all kinds. In between those two things, there's a progression and there's a process of sanctification. And it's this day-by-day, really second-by-second, painfully slow, one degree of glory to another, as the Apostle Paul refers to it, transformation. It's this putting off of the old self and putting on the new self. It's putting to death what is earthly that remains within us. It's resisting sin to the point of shedding blood, as the author of Hebrews puts it. It's standing firm in faith. And it's what the Apostle Peter is speaking about here when he talks about possessing these qualities in increasing measure. All of that requires us to be completely active and engaged and involved in. And this is the pursuit for which we make every effort. So I hope, I hope you're hearing me already on this clearly. Let's just be clear about the distinction. When Peter says, like in verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, he's not saying save yourselves. Okay, that's, not, that's not what he's saying. That's not impossible. He's saying that by making every effort, you will confirm the identity that God has already given you. We can't save ourselves. We can, however, we are, however, not just invited. We're actually called. We're commanded to be active in this role of becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. And so I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but really I would encourage you, let this motivate the active pursuit of our faith. We get to participate with God in the ongoing work that is our holiness. We're we're invited, not only invited, we're called to participate with God in this ongoing work that is our holiness. So be diligent and make every effort. Okay, that's the foundation for our efforts. Second, let's talk about the fruit of making every effort. Peter here mentions these eight qualities which we're to cultivate, uh, which we're to possess in ever-increasing quantity. And we don't have time to go through each one. You could really kind of do a series and do like eight weeks, one on each of these. But just briefly, let me go through them. The first one is faith. Faith is belief, it's trust in the salvation of God through the work of Jesus. And it's really what, uh, what is required of us. What's required of us to experience the salvation of God? It's not do all these other things and then God saves us. It's just believe. Believe in the work that Jesus has done. So Peter says faith is there. But he says then make every effort to add to that faith, to supplement your faith with, the second one is virtue. Uh, moral excellence, this would be, or uh, some of your translations might say goodness. Uh, It's actually the same word that's attributed to God back in verse 3 
when it says um, God's uh, glory and excellence. Excellence is actually the same word that's translated virtue a little bit later on. So I, I read that as saying we're actually to mirror the glory and the virtue of God himself. That's virtue. Knowledge is, in the, is the third one. Uh, Christians should be people who are always increasing in knowledge. We're to grow in our understanding of who God is. We're to grow in our understanding of what faithfulness to him in this world looks like. Um, I love, personally, that this is included here in Peter's list of eight qualities. And I also love that it's not listed in isolation. That means, on one hand, that Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Because sometimes in the history of our faith, uh, the traditions of Christianity, we're known for being anti-intellectual people. Christians are pro-knowledge. Christians are pro-intellect. But here's the important caveat. As, they inc- as knowledge increases in conjunction with increasing virtue... It's not separated from character. So the question for us as we pursue knowledge, because it's a good pursuit, is are we possessing knowledge that puffs us up with pride? Are we pursuing knowledge in a way that we've got facts and data that we have no intention to actually connect to our day-to-day life to live in light of? Or is increasing knowledge connected for us to ongoing growth in virtue and character? These other qualities that are listed there. The fourth one is self-control, uh, and that is discipline to resist the draw and the pull of sin. Now, deeper than that, we don't just want to be disciplined people, right? As Christians, we don't want to settle just to be disciplined people. We actually want to have deeper desires for things that are good. We want to replace the, the desire for cheap substitutes with the substance. We want to have a longing for God and for his glory and for the good of others that it, from a deep place in our own hearts. We want an appetite for those things. But because sin is so powerful, because its remnants just put their roots deep into us, we have to cultivate and practice self-control to resist sin, to flee from sin when temptation comes, because certainly it does come. Steadfastness is the next one. Uh, Anybody, I think, with a little bit of, of passion behind them, can, can take on some kind of new program or plan of self-improvement and do it for like a couple days. Right? If you visit a gym at the start of January, you see this happen all the time. If you come back two weeks later, you see, okay, that was just a short-lived, week-long thing. What actually matters, though, in the Christian pursuit of these things is endurance and perseverance and pressing on. When you, get, when you, when you stumble, you get back up. I love how the great abolitionist William Wilberforce thought about this. He once said, I daily become more sensible that my work must be affected by constant and regular exertions rather than by sudden and violent ones. Constant and regular exertions rather than sudden and violent ones. So I think we have a tendency to like suddenly and violently like run after something. Like, that sounds good. I'm going after that. Or that sounds good. And he's saying, no, constant and regular exertions. Uh, Eugene Peterson calls it long obedience in the same direction. Steadfastness, perseverance in these things. Godliness is the next one. And if you're like me, when you hear godliness, your mind immediately goes to something exceptional. Kind of like what what we hear maybe when we hear the word saint. This person is a saint. Wow, that person's a saint. That's exceptional. Actually, the word here for godliness is a compound term meaning true worship. And so this is not actually meant to be the exceptional. This is actually just meant to be the daily implications of, a, of being part of God's rescued people. That we are adopted into God's family, and as adopted 
sons and daughters in God's family, we cultivate the family resemblance. We mirror God's own character and God's own heart. The next one is brotherly affection, which is love for other Christians. Christian uh, sanctification, the, the, the process and the, the pursuit of cultivating these things, uh, it's not like a, like a project of self-perfection. Right? It's a call, actually, to sacrificial love and to care for other men and women, and you start with those men and women with whom you share this identity. So brotherly affection is central to this. And then lastly, love. A lifestyle of love. And we could talk about this for a long time, but this is really looking at the world with the heart of God. Um, looking at the world with the eyes of Jesus and serving in the world with the hands and the feet of Jesus and considering the needs of others above yourself and wanting the absolute objective best for another person and doing whatever it is that you have within your power to do toward that end. Now, what's the result? These are those eight qualities where to possess these in ever-increasing measure. What's the result of making every effort to cultivate this? Peter gives us a couple results. One is that making every effort from this keeps us from being ineffective. It keeps us from being ineffective and unfruitful. Um, for those of you who have, who have tried at one point or another to live faithfully, live out the Christian life, this is the question that you inevitably come to. Am I supposed to be focused on faithfulness or am I supposed to be focused on fruitfulness? Like, do I just pay attention to how I live my life and all the specific things that I'm called to, just be faithful to those things, or do I actually have concern and care for the results, the fruit of, of that? And I think if we actually look at the record of Scripture, we have to be concerned with both. I don't think we're allowed to say just one of those things. There's a way to focus on results, to focus on the fruit, while neglecting the means of getting there. It's kind of a Christian version of like the ends justify the means. There's a Christian way of doing that where we like neglect and spurn the, per, the pursuit of godliness just in order to get to a, a place where we see some fruitfulness. And I think that would be totally off-base and inconsistent with what Peter says here. How matters. The means of fruitfulness matter. At the same time, I think there's also a way to talk about faithfulness and to focus on faithfulness as a pious-sounding evasion for our call to actually be those who produce fruit. It's, it sounds good, doesn't it? I'm just going to be faithful. I'm just going to be faithful. I'm not going to think at all about the fruitfulness of my life. Well, I, I like how that sounds. And at the same time, then I read Jesus saying in John chapter 5, I am the vine, John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So according to Jesus, faithfulness produces fruitfulness. It always does. Now, how visible or invisible that is or how much we get to see of that or observe of that in our lifetime or not, that's not up to us, but there is fruitfulness. And as we make every effort to possess and grow in these qualities, Peter says it keeps us from being unfruitful and from being ineffective. A second result is that making every effort keeps us from falling. He says you will never fall. In verse 10, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. And again, that doesn't mean that you don't ever sin again. It does mean that you don't fall away. That you, don't, you won't reject Christ and turn from Him. See, long before any of us ever 
reject Christ and walk away. And all of us, maybe, have done, maybe some of us have done that. Maybe a lot of us have done that. Um, all of us know people who have done that, who are doing that right now. Long before we ever walk away, the pursuit of these qualities has faded. And the cultivation of this kind of life has been neglected. And these things have become unimportant or unsatisfying to us. Peter says here in verse 9 is that whoever lacks these things is so nearsighted that he is blind. And that really sounds very similar to what Jesus' brother James says in his letter when he says that if we are merely those who hear God's word and don't do it, don't actually put it into practice, we're like a man who looks at himself in a mirror and then once he walks away from the mirror, immediately forgets what he looks like. And so what Peter says here is that making every effort helps us remember who we are. We're prone to forget who we are. Making every effort helps us remember who we are. If we, it helps us live with our eyes open. It prevents this incredibly nearsighted folly of rejecting this life that we are offered in God and pursuing some kind of cheap counterfeit substitute instead. So that's what results from making every effort. Now this passage uh, has been particularly meaningful and I wanted to, to teach on it this morning, to share it with you this morning. Why? Uh, because I need renewal in this. Because I need to be renewed in this. I need, and the, some of you I, I'm in a, a small accountability kind of discipleship group with, I, a regular prayer request of mine is for God to renew my hunger for this to renew my hunger to experience this ongoing, ever-increasing transformation in becoming like Christ. And maybe you'll resonate with this, or or maybe you won't, but the fog created by the the busyness of life, the the pace of life, the demands that come from all the different hats you might wear in your life, plus, for me, the fickleness and laziness of my own heart, those are enemies of this call to be always and ever-transformed. Like, I, I often just wish that I'd arrived already. I often just wish that there was like an autopilot button, an automation of some kind where I could just push it and say, I'll just let, I'll just like take my foot off and just let God do all of this and won't commit myself to the, to the pursuit of these things. But there's not. There's not an autopilot button for that. What there is, which is far better, is the finished work of Christ that makes me a son of God And then there's a call to make every effort to participate with God in my ongoing transformation. And I need that reminder. And so I'm grateful for what Peter writes here when he says, I write this and I intend to remind you of these qualities because I forget. And as I'm reminded by Peter, I want to remind you, church, of these things as well. And for a lot of you in the room, there's going to be nothing new or novel about any of what you heard this morning. Like you might go home and say, I got no new insights out of, uh, of, of understanding God today or understanding his word today from 2 Peter. That is completely good and fine. An old pastor of mine once said that whenever he had a new idea for how to understand scripture, it was always just an ancient heresy that he hadn't figured out yet. <laughs> so if you go home sometimes, you're like, there was nothing new in that. Actually, praise God, We're not meant to be stirred up by novelty. We're meant to be stirred up by reminder. That's what stirs us up to live this out. It's reminder. It's not novelty. We need to remember to become who we are. We need to remember this is what Christ has done. 
And as those who have become his people, these are the qualities to which we devote our lives, not to earn anything from him, but because he already has earned everything for us. The day that you and I stop transforming, growing in these things is either the day that we've died or it's the day that we've become disobedient. And I just would put to you this morning, there is no arrival and there is no automation. So let's join together and let's be people who pray for a hunger for this, right? We can't manufacture that. You can't, I can't like say, hey, all of you have the desire now and the hunger for this, so go do it. We can though remember our call together. We can ask God to renew us in it. We can band together as men and women in this community that we call the church. The church has been established by Jesus so that we love one another and encourage one another and stir one another up to love and good deeds. We can do that. And so men and women, by God's grace and through Christ's work and by the Spirit's power, we have been granted everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have been cleansed of our former sins. So may we make every effort to become who we are. And may God make us fruitful and may he keep us from falling. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, would you take what we need to hear and impress it upon us this morning? in all the noise and the busyness and the fog of our lives, in all of the the sin which so easily entangles, different for each of us, but something we share in common. Would you help us to hear what we need to hear this morning and give us a passion to run hard after you and to run after these qualities, which you promise will be the means by which we never fall and that we are never ineffective or unfruitful. We know that we are helpless apart from you. We know that we are dependent upon your grace to work these things in us. But we also see that you have invited us, and not only invited, but called and commanded us to be active in our own holiness because you've given us that place to do that. So we pray you would help us to see what that looks like for us today. Make us people who are active in the pursuit of our holiness. Make us people who in our pursuit of self-control and steadfastness and love are a testament to the world that there is joy and satisfaction in Jesus more so than there is in anything else. And as we come to this table this morning, may we again see your grace poured out for us. We have been given a new identity that we can live in light of, Jesus, only because you've offered yourself for us. You've been sacrificial and selfless for us. And we come this morning again needing the renewal of your grace in that. I pray this in your name. Amen.